Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 22 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 22, 15 to 22 is where we're going to be. Matthew 22, 15 to 22. Well, in our passage this morning, um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders are going to lay a trap for Jesus. This is a, a shift from what we've been talking about in previous weeks, which we're going to mention here in just a minute, but they're going to lay a trap for Jesus and seek to ensnare Him, and it's, as you might guess, not going to go too well for them. So let's read our passage this morning, Matthew twenty-two fifteen to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Him in His words, and they sent their disciples to Him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me, a coin, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Let's pray over our text this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, and our ears. As we've read your word, we pray that we would hear it, that it would penetrate deep down into our soul, that we might obey it, that it might go with us as we leave here even, and may we think and dwell on it in the days to come. Only you can give us the power to obey what is here, to really think deeply about it. I pray, Father, that you would open our minds to understand what's being said here, that we would even as we go through this sermon begin applying it to our own lives. Would you show each and every one of us in this room the areas of our life that this passage hits on directly? pray that you would do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the religious leaders are really mad, and you can imagine why, because remember just over the past Three weeks, we've looked at three straight parables that Jesus has given to these religious leaders. And in all three of the parables, He has condemned the religious leaders in one fashion or another. You remember first, He gave a parable where He said that the tax collectors and the sinners were going to go into the kingdom of heaven ahead of them. And do you remember why? He said it was because the tax collectors and the sinners, when they heard the preaching of John the Baptist, they repented at his preaching, and you, tax, you religious leaders, elites, did not. Then he gave this second parable, where he said that the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from them, and it's going to be given to people that are bearing its fruit. And we talked about that at length meaning the, the people that are bearing the fruit of repentance, people that are repenting of sin and showing the fruit of the kingdom, a life of subsequent holiness. 
And then finally, those parables reached a climax on the third parable where last week we saw that he says to the religious leaders that they're going to be thrown into hell. Not just that the people are going in ahead of them. Not just that the kingdom is going to be taken away and given to people that are bearing its fruit. But that they're going to be placed in a position of prominence and you're not even getting in. You're going to be thrown into the pit of hell. Into outer darkness where there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth because you bear no fruit of the kingdom. So, needless to say, the religious leaders are angry at this. Wouldn't you be? Think so. But you see, they have a huge problem. Because if you'll go back into chapter 21 and verse 46, if you'll look back to the previous chapter, very end there, verse 46, he says, it says this, And although they were seeking to arrest him, they were seeking to arrest Jesus, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So they have a significant problem on their hands. Because it turns out that as of this moment, Jesus is well-liked. Well, it would help you to think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the chief priests, the elders, the poly- all the, the, the religious leaders that are mentioned, the scribes, all of them as politicians who happen to be in the role of religious leaders. Now, today we have something very similar, but it's flipped. We have politicians who put themselves in the role of religious leaders. They think they are elected politicians. These are religious leaders who are posing as politicians. It's basically the same thing, uh, but reverse. And the the effects are very similar. Typically, in all of those scenarios, you have the Bible and Jesus in particular being abused and used as a prop. And that's on both sides of the aisle. Both Republican and Democrat in our country. Here, it's not necessarily Jesus. It's more God and the Old Testament used as props. Worship in the temple used as props. And the purpose is to manipulate the masses, essentially. When they talk about, in our day, Christianity or the gospel, in their day, worship in the temple, they typically get it totally wrong. But most of them have the same purpose. Power. And they'll do anything to keep it. That is the case for the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, all of them. So you can see this is a significant problem for the religious leaders of the day that the masses think so highly of Jesus. They hold Him to be a prophet. Well, if you start thinking about, like a politician about this situation, how would you deal with this threat? That the masses like this man Jesus. How would you deal with it as a politician? Well, you can't just kill him. Because then he'll be a martyr. You can't tell the people how bad he is. They hold him to be a prophet. They won't listen to you. He has to make himself unfavorable to them first. We see the same thing today. A leader might say something. They'll ask him a question that they already know the answer to. And what is the hope 
of asking a question they already know the answer to. So that when he gives them the answer, or she gives them the answer that they already know, they can then take that and spin it up. Spin everyone into a frenzy. Right? So the plan for the Pharisees is patently obvious. Make Jesus an enemy of the people. And if you just pay attention to the text in verse 15, they tell you that. Matthew tells you that. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words so that the people would say, this guy doesn't know anything. This guy's against us. So that's exactly what the leaders, in this case the Pharisees, are planning to do. They're going to take swings at him before they're going to give up on taking swings and just turn to the Romans and have them kill him. The flow of these challenges that that they're going to present uh, is going to be, the flow of our sermons for the next couple weeks is going to be challenge and then response. We're going to look at the challenge that's given to Jesus and then we're going to look at the response that he gives to them. This is going to be, there's three parables that were given against the religious leaders. There's going to be three challenges that they levy against Jesus. And so we're going to look at challenge, then response. And then we'll see the point that Jesus is is making because inevitably in all of these responses that he's going to give, he is simultaneously going to not fall into their trap and also ensnare them in the process every single time. So first, let's look at the challenge that's given to Jesus in uh, verses 16 and 17. And they sent their disciples, pay attention to that, they sent their disciples to him, that is the Pharisees' disciples, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Okay, so the Pharisees are the first to take a swing at Jesus. But if you notice in the text, the Pharisees aren't the one that actually go to take this swing at Jesus. They send their interns. All right? Now, why would you send your interns to go do this? Well, the reason, again, is very obvious. The people love Jesus, and they think he's a prophet. And so it doesn't do good for them to be put in a position where they might either be ensnared or might be seen by the people as hating this man that they revere. So they send the interns to do it. We hear the same thing today. I didn't send that tweet. It was my intern that did it. So I fired him, right? You can always fire the interns. And so he's the sacrificial lamb. So the disciples of the Pharisees are in this one group. And then in the other group, there is this one group called the Herodians that go with them to try to trap Jesus. First, they, they, they do what anybody would do. They butter him up, right? They say, you're so wise. You're so all-knowing. You are so just, you're awesome. We love you. Can we ask you a question? Can you tell us whether it's lawful to pay taxes to the government or not? Now, we know this is a trap because Matthew's already told us that it's a trap, that they're trying to entangle him in his words. But the question is, that they ask is loaded with cultural baggage that Matthew does not explain to us at all. He just really assumes that you understand all the cultural pieces that are in play in their question. So there's several cultural things that you need to understand here in order to really grasp the trap and the nature of the trap 
that they've just set for Jesus by asking him this question. First, there is this group called the Herodians. What are they doing here? You rarely ever hear from them in the Gospels, but they come along with the interns and to, to ask uh, Jesus this question. Now, Herodians are a lot like Sadducees. All right, you remember, the Sadducees are, is an easy way of remembering it, the Sadducees are sad, you see. I already hear some of you already saying it. You, you remember it. Okay, good. Good, it works. Uh, the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe that day's ever coming. But not only that, the Sadducees are very liberal in many other ways. They're liberal with the Scriptures. They don't believe in anything but the first five books of the Bible. Those are the only things that, to them, are authoritative. The books of Moses. Okay, that's, that's really it. Everything else is just commentary and not really authoritative. They're also uh, aristocracy. They're high up in the government. They have lots of influence. They have lots of power. They are by far the smallest percentage of people inside Judaism. But they have the most power because they are the richest. All right. They also believe, the Sadducees, believe that the people that should be ruling in Israel should be the Jews. That the Romans should lead and that we should have all the power. The Herodians are just like the Sadducees in the sense that them too, they, they're liberal, they're part of the aristocracy, they believe virtually all the same things as the Sadducees, with the exception, they believe that Rome should rule. You can hear the word Herod in Herodians. They are essentially proponents of Rome's rule. So they're completely opposite of the Pharisees and the interns of the Pharisees. All right? The Pharisees are pretty conservative. They believe in the whole Old Testament. They believe that the Jews should rule. And so here are two groups going together that couldn't be any, diff any more different politically. But the enemy of my enemy is my friend, as the saying goes, right? So they have found common cause here, and they're going to ensnare Jesus, or they think they are. Now, that's the first thing you need to know. The second thing that you need to know, or that you need to do, is think like a first, a first century Jew. The tax that they're asking about right here is something called a poll tax, or sometimes called a census tax. And it's a tax that Rome would collect only in the province of Judea. So down in the south where they're at right now, only in the province of Judea, Rome would collect this from every adult Jew. They could be a man, they could be a woman, they could even be a slave. They would collect the tax across the board and they collected it based on the census that they had taken from the people. So they count their people, figure out how many people need to be taxed, and then they, they tax them. Now, the Roman currency that Jesus asks for, and that they have, that he asked for to pay the tax, is a silver coin, and on it has Tiberius Caesar's image. Not Caesar Augustus, but the son of Caesar Augustus, Tiberius Caesar. And under the image, notice Jesus asks about the inscription. He says, whose image and whose inscription is this? And they say Caesar's. Under the image of Tiberius Caesar, there is an inscription that reads, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So Augustus Caesar is God, and Tiberius is his son. He is the son of God. That is what Tiberius Caesar is claiming 
on the coin that they used to pay the tax. On the back of the coin, there is a picture of a Roman goddess and an inscription there that reads, Pontiff Maxim, which means high priest. So on one side of the coin, it says, Tiberius, son of God. On the back side, high priest. So if you're thinking like a first century Jew, then you're required to pay taxes to an evil empire who's, who uses money that you give them to do evil things, who in addition to the evil they propagate, worship pagan gods and often demand worship of pagan gods. And the head of this evil empire claims that he is himself the son of God and a high priest. Do you have a problem with this tax? I think you do. I think all of us would. And all of us do have problems with similar taxes that are collected on us. Now, that's the second thing you need to know. The third thing you need to know is that 25 years prior to this question being asked to Jesus, there was a man by the name of Judas who tried to lead a revolt against Rome. And like Jesus, he was also from Galilee. Now, he wasn't responsible to pay the tax to Rome. It was only the Judeans that were responsible to pay the tax. The Galileans were, did not have to pay the tax. So Jesus does not have to pay the tax. It's the, it's the Judeans that have to pay the tax. Now, Galileans obviously didn't have to pay it, so it was only the people in Judea. Nonetheless... Judas, who was from Galilee, came down to Judea and said this. Judas, and this is, comes from Josephus, he said, they were cowards if they would endure to pay a tax to the Romans and would, after God, submit to mortal men as their lords. So Judas, 25 years before this question is asked to Jesus, Judas tries to lead a revolt with his fellow Judeans, saying, listen, if you think that you can submit to God and then turn around and submit to men by paying this poll tax, you're crazy. You're pagan. That's not following God in any way. So let's review the details of the trap that's been laid out here for Jesus. A group made up on the one hand of rich Jews who are good friends with Roman authorities and who are fine with the tax, come together with, on the other hand, a conservative group of commoners who are also leaders in Israel, well, interns of leaders, who despise the tax. They come together and ask Jesus the Galilean to play the role of Judas and be the arbiter for all of the Judeans as to this ongoing feud of whether we should pay the tax or not. See how the question is pretty devious? See, if, you, if, he, if he says, don't pay the tax, then he's outed himself as a revolutionary, just like Judas. In which case, the Herodians, who are friends with the Romans, go back to the Romans, and they say to the Romans, here's a guy trying to lead an insurrection. In fact, they're going to say that to the Romans anyway. They're going to lie and say that to the Romans anyway when Jesus is on trial. But 
That's the idea. They'll go back, they'll tell the Romans, look, he's trying to lead an insurrection just like Judas, and what will the Romans do? They'll come in just like they did with Judas, and they'll put him to death. Quite a devious scheme. But on the other hand, if he turns to the crowds and says, pay the tax, then he runs the risk of isolating the Pharisees and by far the vast majority of that crowd who considers themselves to be in the Pharisaical party. And they throw him out because he's no longer a prophet. He's clearly representing Rome's interest. All he wants is power. So you can see that the scheme is pretty deep and treacherous. But I want you to look deeper into what the Pharisees and the Herodians are saying to Jesus. See, their understanding is that if this man wants to claim that he is a representative of the sacred, meaning he's a representative of the godly way of thinking about a situation, then he is going to say, don't pay the tax. Because that has to be God's opinion on the matter. If you want to represent the sacred, if you're claiming to be the Son of God, or maybe just a prophet, and you're representing the sacred things in society, then surely you're going to tell us don't pay the tax. Because this obviously has to be the most righteous thing that a true servant of God could do. But then on the other hand, to advise paying the tax would be to side with the secularists. The Herodians. The ones who sold out to Rome. And why did they sell out to Rome? So that they could have political power. So that they could have authority. They've more or less rejected the sacred. They don't really care too much about it. Notice they've even led in the temple no prayer and the collection of money. Right? They've led to that kind of perversion in Israel already, we know. They've rejected all the sacred, all for secular power, for secular money, for secular influence. They're trying to force Jesus into one of two boxes. Either you're representing the sacred, or you're representing the secular. Which is it? And both the sacred and the secular have enemies within Jewish culture. So which will it be? But now let's look at the response from Jesus. 22, verse 18 to 22. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So, so first of all, Jesus exhibits a little bit of situational awareness. He understands all too well what their flattery really is. It's a means to ensnare him in front of the crowd and to trap him in his words in hopes that they can shift public opinion away from Jesus to the chant of crucify him. And so this is not the first time that Jesus is going to call them a hypocrite. This is not the first time he has called them a hypocrite. This is not the last time he will call them hypocrites. We're going to have a whole chapter in in chapter 23 where he does nothing but call them hypocrites. They are literally play actors, which is what the term hypocrite means. They're saying one thing in their flattery. Oh, you're so wise. You're so all-knowing. We know that you just tell it like it is. But in their hearts, they want to kill him. They are pretending to be one thing and are really another. 
they are quite literally the definition of hypocrites. So he asks them to bring him a coin, which, notice, they have no problems producing. They've got them all in their pockets, right? They have no problem producing in spite of the fact that probably they're standing in the temple, which is unlawful to do to begin with. But they've got these coins in their pockets. They have absolutely no problem carrying them around in their pockets. They have no problem spending them in the marketplace. They only have a problem paying taxes with them. And so someone produces a coin. And Jesus quizzes them about the likeness and the inscription on the coin. Of course, they answer, Caesar is on the coin. They know who it represents, obviously. And from that statement comes Jesus' lesson. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God the things that are God's. And everyone around is astonished. Why are they frozen? That seems like a simple lesson. But they're frozen. They're astonished. Notice that the box that they tried to put Jesus in somehow didn't work. Because Jesus actually uncovered a third option that they hadn't considered. Neither part of the crowd is mad at Jesus. In fact, they go to a different option altogether. They're astonished. They're frozen. He walks away from them. They don't do anything to him. So how did he do this? I've heard this passage interpreted one particular way my entire life. And maybe you're with me. Maybe you've heard this before. And I've even heard it preached by some pastors that, that it makes me a little nervous to disagree with. You know, the people that I'm talking about, you're like, you hear that sermon and you go, I don't agree with you, but I really want to. I should. <laughs> I think I should. But the common interpretation of this passage goes something like this, that they say Jesus is demonstrating the likeness on the coin. He holds up the coin. He demonstrates the likeness of Tiberius Caesar on it. And Jesus is saying that the one whose image is stamped on the coin is the one to whom it belongs. He owns it. So give it back to him because his image is stamped on it. Caesar's image is stamped on the coin, and therefore Caesar owns the coin. So give to Caesar what rightfully belongs to him. And then the interpretation goes, what Jesus is saying is that you are made in the image of God. And therefore, God's image is stamped on you, so give back to Caesar what is his, but you owe your life to God, so give your life to God. Now, I don't totally agree with that interpretation of what Jesus is saying here. Now, in the end, it gets us to about the same conclusion, but the way you get there actually does matter. Uh, you know this from math when you're a kid, right? you got to we got some math majors in here. They're not kids. They're adults, uh, kind of. So, uh, so <laughs> I'm teasing. So, you fill out your math problem, but you don't, the teacher doesn't just want the answer. She wants to see, or he wants to see, the work that you produce. And it's possible, in some scenarios, where you might actually get the wrong work, but come to the right answer. And you might get partial credit for that, because, oh, you got the right answer. You went about it the wrong way. And I think that's the case here. First things that you need to notice about that particular interpretation is that the whole bit about you being made into the image of God isn't in the text. Jesus doesn't actually say that. He says instead, give to God what is God's. Render to God what is God's. And second, to agree essentially on principle with the tax isolates one part of the crowd, a major part of the crowd. Because he's essentially said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. If that second part of the statement doesn't totally blow their minds, 
then they're going to think that he's agreeing with the tax and they're going to be mad at him. But that's not what happens. They're frozen by his logic and his reason so much that he just walks away from there. I think the better way to understand this, what Jesus is saying uh, to his audience here, is if I were to tell you to go, that you need to go home and you need to take an account of everything that's in your house and I want you to set aside everything in your house that belongs to God and I want you to set to this side everything that belongs to you. How much would be in your pile? Nothing. Right? Everybody recognizes that. Everybody knows that when we say, what belongs to God, the answer is everything. In what world can you claim that there is anything that rightly belongs to you, that is completely your possession? Over what could you potentially lay your hand and say, mine? Nothing. There's not one thing that you have. We are stewards and stewards alone. We don't own anything. First of all, we're temporary. We're going to die one day, right? And it's going to go to someone else. We don't own it. We're just renting it. He owns everything. There's nothing that you could touch that you could say, mine, God's the rightful owner of everything. Even the coins that you pay your taxes with, or the check, as it were, that you pay your taxes with. He owns the Roman government. He owns the American government. He owns the man whose image is on the coin. That's right. He owns even Caesar. He owned George Washington. He owned every single person that's on any one of our bills as well. So let's think deeply about how Jesus actually answers them here. And there are at least three important things that I think Jesus is saying here. If God owns everything, then at best, Caesar is merely exercising an authority that is derived. So the first thing that he's saying is that Caesar's authority is derived from God. Caesar has authority, sure. He has authority to collect taxes, but that authority is derived from God, meaning that the authority that Caesar has is on loan to him from God. Think about Romans 13, 1-2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Ouch. That seems extreme and a little harsh from Paul. I want to sometimes rip Romans 13 right out of the Bible. That's hard to read. Where does Paul get that? I, I think, in part, he gets it from here. There is no authority except from God. The second and third things that he's saying are closely linked, and I want to consider them together. Second, it is possible, he's saying, to render to Caesar and not render to God. Otherwise, why would you give the command? It's possible to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and not render to God what is God's. And third, it's also possible to render to Caesar what is Caesar's 
and at the same time render to God what is God by the same action. That's what he's saying. That you're separating these actions into two completely separate actions. Whether you're in this box representing the sacred or in this box representing the secular, you're separating them and they can all actually be accomplished in the same task. You can both pay the tax and honor God at the same time. How is it possible that I can pay my taxes to the government and be rendering that money to God at the same time? As, to be honest with you, as an American, that seems illogical to me. As a former Texan, that seems really illogical to me. Texans have a thing about this. You see, how can you possibly claim that in paying my taxes, I'm rendering service to God at the same time? That doesn't seem right. That's a, that's a secular event. Paying my taxes is something that you do in the world. That's a worldly thing. That's not a sacred thing. I want you to think about how Paul speaks to the bondservant in Ephesians chapter 6. Read this with me. Ephesians 6, 5 to 8. It's going to appear on the screen behind me. Think really closely about this. We're going to read it slow. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Listen to this. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Think about that. He's talking to slaves here. He's talking to bondservants, to slaves, that they are to, uh, the, the way they are to obey uh, is in service to the Lord. And the way that they are to obey their masters render service to the Lord and not to man, but it matters the way that they do it. The heart behind the service is what allows them to line up sacred and secular in the same trajectory. How are they to do that? Well, he says, if you're going to do this as a secular way of obedience, then you're going to do it as a way of eye service, simply as people pleasers. But there is a way in which you can serve your masters that's actually rendering service to God. And what does he say there? He says that is to do the will of God from the heart. Rendering service to God with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So who are you serving when you're doing this? You're serving the God behind the Master, not the Master Himself. In the same way as Jesus speaking right here to the people, He's drilling down on this concept, and He's, he's doing it in such a way that leaves them speechless. They hadn't considered this as a possibility, that I could pay taxes to Caesar and be serving the God behind Caesar that put Caesar in authority. It's inconceivable to them that God could potentially use a person as evil and as corrupt as Caesar. It was inconceivable to Habakkuk that God could use the Babylonians 
who are way more wicked than Israel to come in and judge Israel. God is always drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. That's all he's got are crooked sticks. But he always draws perfectly straight lines. Every person he uses is evil in the heart. And yet he always draws straight lines. So if I could rephrase what Jesus is saying here to everybody in answer to this question, he's not dodging the question. He's answering it in a way that they didn't expect. What he's saying is, pay your taxes to the glory of God. Uh Uh-oh. That's something we didn't expect. The Pharisees and the leaders want to put Jesus in a box. Either your kingdom, the kingdom that you have preached, this whole book you're, you're bringing, you're setting down right now, this kingdom that you're bringing is either in the sacred box or it's in the secular box. Which is it? Which does it belong to? Does it belong to the Herodians and the Sadducees or does it belong similar to the Pharisees? Is it in the sacred box or is it the uh, secular box? Either it refuses to pay the taxes, making it sacred, or it accepts the tax and opts for the secular power of Rome. Which box are you in? But Jesus is correcting them and he's saying, you don't understand. The kingdom that I'm bringing has subsumed the secular. It has absorbed, it has overtaken the secular. There is no earthly power that can threaten it. Therefore, subjects of my kingdom, that is Christ speaking, subjects of Christ's kingdom are also unthreatened by earthly power. In the exact same way Jesus is. You know, that's what he's doing here. He's telling them, I'm not threatened by any of the powers, either that you represent or that Rome represents. I'm not worried about any of them. He knows he's going to rise from the dead. He's already told his disciples that. He knows he has to go to the cross. He's already told his disciples that too. He knows he's going to have to die. Who does he fear? He doesn't fear anybody. He's correcting here. He's saying that no power on earth can threaten me. And anyone that follows me and follows my kingdom and is a true servant of my kingdom isn't threatened by earthly power either. And when they serve the governmental authorities by paying taxes, they're not serving the governmental authorities. They're serving the king who put those authorities in place. Some of you might be thinking, well, well, wait a minute. What about governments that abuse their authority? North Korea. Maybe, Maybe other authorities. Maybe something that's growing in America. Who knows? What about these governments that abuse their authority? Let me ask you. Can a government abuse its authority in a worse way than killing the Son of God? The answer to that is is no. There's no worse way to abuse your authority as government than killing Jesus. But listen to what Jesus says to Pontius Pilate. When he's on trial for his life in John 19, 9-11, Pilate entered his quarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all 
unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. See, for Jesus, there's nothing that isn't sacred because God owns it all. And there's nothing that God has given that isn't good. Is Pilate in sin here? Absolutely he is. Are the Jewish authorities in sin in the crucifixion of Christ? Absolutely they are. Will they answer to all of their abuses of authority and judgment as any governing authority will? Absolutely they will. But does Jesus still submit to it because in submitting to those in authority over him, he is submitting to God? Absolutely he does. Inevitably, governing authorities will attempt to cross the line. They will attempt to force Christians to bend their knees to the emperor, to the king, to the president as the ultimate authority, to command worship as if their authority isn't derived. They'll say, worship me. And if you don't worship me, I will put you to death, to which Christians should always refuse because worship is something that belongs to God alone, and instead we face death. Instead, we choose death. Instead, we choose imprisonment. Instead, we choose uh, poverty. Instead, we choose starvation. Citizens of God's kingdom are those who can see beyond the secular to the God behind it. And in their hearts can render all of their service to God. Now, most often... That will mean submitting to governing authorities' taxes or a number of other things. Occasionally, that will mean submitting to governing authorities' punishments. But it always is submitting to God. There's a broader principle at work here that I think all Christians would do well to understand. God stands behind everything that you do. In everything that you do, there is a way to serve God and a way to merely serve Caesar. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then your entire life, every aspect of your life, is subsumed by the kingdom of God. Every single thing The values of Christ's kingdom become the lens by which you look at everything. Think think of something as benign and simple as dinner. Dinner no longer becomes a meal that you eat with your family. Dinner now becomes an opportunity for you to thank the Lord that He has put this food on your plate in front of you. That He has provided it for your family. Do you also realize He didn't have to make food taste good? You know that? He could just make your stomach hurt so that you have to eat to fill it up. He didn't have to make it actually taste good too. Sometimes he made it taste too good, I think. But it's something we can give thanks for. It's something that bubbles up for the Christian into more gratitude beyond the meal that's on our plate. 
It's also an opportunity for our family to sit down, we eat dinner, we, we sing songs, hymns, we break out the Bible, we read passages from Scripture, we talk about what it means there at the dinner table. Dinner is a convoy into family worship for us. It's an opportunity to lead into more thanksgiving and more things like that. We have a tendency to look at our lives as the sacred things in life when we go to church, when we read our Bibles, when we do those kinds of, when we sing hymns, when we do those kinds of things. And then there are other things in our life which are the secular, when we go to work, when we parent our kids, when we pay our taxes. But God's kingdom has taken over everything. It's lined everything up in a straight row. So that now everything that I do, whether it's paying taxes or going to work or parenting my kids, even reading the Bible or singing hymns, all of it is in service to the Lord. Every single thing. We cannot separate the sacred and the secular. Rather, we serve God in the secular. We serve God in the world in everything that we do. Now, taxes is a great example. Submitting to a yearly tax bill is submitting to the Lord. That's what it is. Jesus is telling you that there is a heart behind the check writing. And, and so then when you, what, what is cutting the corner on taxes? What is it when you avoid taxes? It's saying to the Lord, this is mine. This over here is the secular box. You belong in the sacred box you don't belong here. This is a tax thing. It's between me and Uncle Sam. It's got nothing to do with you. But in reality, because Jesus has lined everything up, what you're doing is placing your hand on your wallet and you're saying, this belongs to me. You have no say. But it's not just taxes. Business owners are in here. And employees of businesses are in here. People that are in places of leadership. You can serve God and serve His kingdom in the business that you represent. And the way that you do that is through ethical business practices. The way you lead your business. The fair wages that you pay your employee. Being honest with your customers even when it doesn't benefit your bottom line. Employees can serve the Lord in the workplace that they're in, right in the place that they're in. I don't care if you're a plumber or you're an electrician or you're some top executive in some company. It doesn't matter. In every business that you're in, there are kingdom principles, there are kingdom values, and there's a way of serving God in that. You don't have to quit and become a missionary in Africa. It's a noble cause if you want to take it up. But you can serve the Lord there in that place of work. Submitting to your boss, as an example, is submitting to God who has placed that authority over you. We have many parents in our congregation. You, your task in raising children often seems thankless. It definitely seems repetitive. Often seems unproductive. They give you this baby to take home from the hospital they don't give you an instruction manual. They don't even make sure you can do it. They just send you out the door. And from moment one, you begin to drown. You're like, I don't know what to do. I'm not getting any sleep. How am I ever supposed to parent this thing? I don't even know what parenting is. I'm just trying to survive. 
You're not to serve your children by being their best friends, by telling them what you think they want to hear or telling them what they think they want to hear. You are to serve God that gave you those children by raising those children in the way that He has commanded you to raise them. You are to raise them to be in awe and to receive correction, the kind of correction that God gives to us through His Word. You're to open the Bible before them. You're to read it to them. You're to explain it to them. Tell them what it means. And that's intimidating to you because you might not know yourself. It's like any homeschool teacher can tell you. Or maybe any school teacher can tell you. You just got to stay one day ahead. Little by little. And He gives you grace. But it's your job to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. There are kingdom principles at work here. You're to serve God in your parenting. Serve God in your business practice. Serve God in your paying of taxes. Serve God in everything that you're doing. It all lines up. You're serving the king behind the thing that's in the world. So when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, He meant that it starts right now. Right where you are. It's not something that just happens when you die. You go into the kingdom of God. No, it's something that you're a part of right now. It begins right now in the secular world. And citizens of His kingdom are serving a sacred God who has come into the secular world, into our warped secular hearts, and redeemed them for His purposes by the blood of His Son, making a sacred space for the Holy Spirit to dwell We are now sacred beings bought with the blood of the Lamb in a secular world. And so because of that, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a complex and often terrifying task it is to really think about Submitting to people in authority over us. What if they abuse their authority? What if they take advantage of positions of leadership? What if they are wicked? We have so many fears and so many concerns, and all of them are alleviated by your word. Give us a heart that trusts you. If it means money, we have to pay in taxes. If it means submitting to a boss that we really wish would get his. Whatever it means, pray that you would give us hearts that trust you. That more than anything, want to serve your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen.